I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. So for those of you that have not heard, Pastor Ferguson is under the weather. And we have confidence that he will be over the weather soon, so let's pray for that. Okay. But um, yesterday uh, he called and was feeling that kind of heavy, dreaded blanket of sickness coming over him that we've all felt, and uh, asked if I would be willing to share our sermon time today. By the way, Pastor Dave is starting a new series on the Ten Commandments uh, next week uh, because he wasn't able to start today. So uh, the coincidence that was kind of fun this week um, is uh, for my family and me, my name's Andy Nash, and we lived here in many, uh, many years ago in this community, was just this week our family transfer was made official back into Collegedale Church. And, um, you know, I thought yesterday, what a warm, welcoming church. Your first week back as new members and the senior pastor calls and invites you to have the sermon. Let's bow our heads as we begin. Lord, we lift uh, your servant, Pastor Dave, before you this morning. I pray that he will uh, find rest and renewal, that you will um, bless him and Carolyn uh, richly uh, as he prepares to uh, bring us to Sinai, to the 10 words that you spoke to your people, uh, that our hearts will be prepared for this uh, powerful series that will begin next week. Thank you for this church family a group of people that Cindy and I have loved for so long and, and kids that we've watched grow up. Uh, thank you for the chance to reunite and to uh, journey together in the grace of your son, I pray. Amen. Well, several years ago, a group of people were asked a survey question. The question was, if Jesus came back today, would you be saved? Now, deep in your heart, how would you answer this question? If Jesus came back today, January 14, 2003, would you be saved? The group of people who were asked this question were Adventist young adults from throughout North America. It was a large sample. Here is how they answered. 38.7% said yes, If Jesus came back today, they would be saved. 42% said maybe. 14.7% answered, I don't think so. And 4.6% said they would not. So as you consider these percentages, what's your reaction? Do you feel surprised? Does anyone feel a little sad that only 38% of young adult Christians thought that they would be saved if Christ returned. At the time I first saw this survey, I was teaching Life and Teachings of Jesus class here at Southern. So we began to talk in class about this question. First we talked about where our minds went when we asked this question. What about you? Did your mind go to yourself, or does your mind go to Christ? 
It's really important, isn't it? Because you know, the real question in this survey is not, am I worthy to be saved? The real question is, is he worthy to save me? Is he worthy or not to save you? In class, we talked about how even on our very best day, the finest day we've ever lived, we cannot merit ourselves before a holy God. I certainly can't. Even on our best day, we are not worthy. But even on our very worst day, Jesus is worthy to save you and me. And then in class, we talked about the most amazing part of all. Here it is. We cannot even desire salvation in Christ without the Holy Spirit of Christ. You can't even desire Jesus without the Holy Spirit of Jesus. And if you have the Holy Spirit of Christ, then you have salvation. You're sealed in him. I was telling another professor colleague at Southern who worked full-time in the religion department about the survey. He teaches theology majors. So he took this survey and gave it to a class of all theology majors. 100% of them answered yes. If Jesus came back today, they would be saved. Now I can promise you this isn't because these theology majors thought that they were perfect. It's because they know that Christ is perfect. So as we prepare to study a little this morning about the question of salvation in Christ, there is this one other question that we should probably consider as well, because it comes up a lot in class, in church. Here it is. If my salvation is Christ's work, what difference does my work make? What do you think, kids? If our salvation is totally the all-sufficient work of Christ, then what does it matter? My daily choices and my behaviors. Do these things make any difference at all? Are you kidding? Of course they do. It's called the abundant life. Please open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. And let's see together what Jesus himself taught about salvation and the abundant life. Kids, you like this picture of the snow? Does that look good right now? No, we lived in Denver for three years where we were pastoring, and it snowed after Mother's Day. So we got a lot of snow. But around here, it's exciting, isn't it? (laughs) As we turn to this chapter, Luke chapter 9, we'll actually be taking a little journey today, not only with Jesus, but with two of his followers who happen to be young adults named James and John. Here we go, Luke chapter 9, let's start in verse 51, verse 51 at the end of the chapter. Luke 9, verse 51. As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, this is just a few months before he will die, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. I love it. It says he set his face, resolved to Jerusalem. Nothing could stop him. 
and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. So what an impressive moment to begin with, right? Did you catch how loving these young adult brothers James and John were after spending three years with Jesus. When the local people weren't nice to them, James and John turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Did Jesus ever face palm? No, James and John, I don't need you to call down fire from heaven to destroy them. So right up front, what do you think about the spiritual condition of two of Jesus' most noteworthy followers, including the one who would write the Gospel of John, who want to set the Samaritans on fire? What's their spiritual state? Notice that this story happens at the close of Luke chapter 9. So... Let's move ahead, turn the page to Luke chapter 10, and notice something interesting that Jesus says to his followers, including James and John, remembering the behavior of these two boys one chapter earlier. Turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 20. And look what Jesus has to say to the people following him to Jerusalem. He says, rejoice that your names are written in where? in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life in heaven. So just after James and John have this total meltdown, completely unloving, fiery, Jesus says to them and everyone else, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What does this say about the grace and mercy of Jesus? Was Jesus saying that James and John were perfect people? Was he saying that they were his people anyway? Who of us wants to be judged in our teenage years or young adult years after our worst mistakes? I know we parents worry about that, but look at the assurance. Your names are written in heaven after one of their most disappointing moments. They were still his people. And so were the other 90 plus people traveling in their group as well. 12 disciples, 70 more followers he just sent out, and at least a dozen women. Luke's really good about all these names, Susanna and and, and Joanna and Salome, who followed Jesus and who helped keep everyone level. Jesus told this band of people, men and women, nearly a hundred people following him, that their names were written in heaven because they were with him, because they desired to be with him. I want to say it again to any sensitive souls that are out here, any tender hearts, maybe some Enneagram nines out here, the sweetest people. You cannot even desire Christ without the spirit of Christ. 
And if you have the spirit of Christ, then you already have salvation. Cindy and I have three daughters. Grew up running around this church and campus. Our daughters have a good day. They go to bed, our daughters. Our daughters have a bad day. They still go to bed, our daughters. I have a bad day. I still go to bed, their dad. Love you. See you in the morning. Do you really think it's any different in the family of Jesus? We are his people, his family. Let me add something else personal that I was just thinking about, and I was actually talking to Cindy about last night as I was thinking about this message. I was saying to Cindy that I've never really struggled with God's unconditional love for me. I've only struggled with other people's unconditional love for me. Maybe that's an Enneagram 3 thing. Sometimes feeling like I need to earn or keep it. When our daughter Morgan, our middle daughter, was a baby, we would walk into her room and she would be standing in her crib, you know, kind of waiting to, to leave, to come out. And we would, ever, we would walk in Morgan's room, she would quickly reach down and she would grab like a rattle or a toy and then she would hold it up. Every single time. You'd see Morgan, she would quickly grab something to show us. Sometimes that's been me and maybe some of you too. Maybe we don't feel like we're Maybe you don't feel like we're enough for others, and maybe some of you feel that way about God. And that breaks my heart a little bit to think about that. So we feel like we have to show something to make sure that we're interesting enough to make sure we're not rejected. And God says, you don't need to hold up that rattle or toy for me to delight in you just the way you are. So we've been tracing what these two brothers, James and John, were like before Jesus told them that their names were written in heaven. Their their lowest moment, he gives them that reassurance. Let's go ahead and see what these boys were like after Jesus told them that their names were written in heaven. Surely we would see a dramatic improvement. Let's jump over to Mark chapter 10, one book back, but actually Mark 10 follows chronologically the story we just read in Luke 10, all right? So this is forward in time. If you wanna flip back to Mark chapter 10, we come to one more moment with these boys, James and John, with Jesus just a few months before he dies for them. Let's see how impressive they are now. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and declared, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) They actually came with their mom and asked this. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus inquired. Can you hear the humor in his voice? They answered, grant that one of us may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You do not know what you're asking, Jesus replied. Can you drink the cup I will drink or be baptized with the baptism I will undergo? We can, the brothers answered. You will drink the cup that I drink, Jesus said, and you'll be baptized with the baptism that I undergo. 
But to sit at my right or left hand is not mine to grant. Those seats belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the other 10 disciples heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Again, such an impressive group, isn't it? After being three full years with Jesus, the Son of God, his closest followers are instead vying among themselves over who's the greatest. And still, their names are written in heaven. Nothing has changed. How patient and gentle is Jesus with us? Even when we struggle, he still covers us, drenches us in his blood of salvation. Because our salvation is not about us and our ups and downs. It's about him, he is worthy to save. By the way, this is how it always was. You know, it's, it's a myth that in the Old Testament, you know, people weren't saved by grace They were saved by works. It was always by grace alone that we were saved. I like this visual. Some of you may remember uh, this movie from Sabbath Afternoons. God's people were saved by grace at the Red Sea. Can you go back one slide? God's people were saved by grace at the Red Sea before they were asked to obey at Sinai. You like that imagery? Saved by grace at Passover and the Red Sea and then asked to obey at Sinai. Ten Commandments, starting next week. So what about that other question we asked earlier as we transition? If God's people were always saved by grace alone, where did obedience get them? Here's where their obedience got them. Take a look at this next beautiful picture. The abundant life a land of promise filled with milk and honey. Now, how many of the two million people coming out of Egypt entered the abundant life? Just a couple, right? You think everyone else was lost? Book of Numbers says they were forgiven, but because of their behavior, they weren't ready to enter into the abundant life. This is how it works. Our salvation has everything to do, if we can go to the next side, Seth, with the work of Christ alone. But... The abundant life has everything to do with the work of Christ in us, with our decisions, with our behaviors. Absolutely. The decisions that you and I make on Monday morning and Saturday night directly impact whether we're living the abundant life. Of course they do. It matters, the daily choices. Get up, Rocky. Dig in. It's a new year. This past year, I've been working on a book project on the story of redemption, which is a great privilege for me to have this time to work on this. And I was telling one of my daughter's friends the other day, there's times I get upset with myself, like, man, I have this opportunity to dig in, and there's sometimes I get distracted watching the news or the all-important sports news, and it's like, come on, man, get up, dig in on this. You can live the abundant life more fully. That's part of our experience. It's how it should be, but it's not our salvation. One more stop on our journey today. Turn to John chapter 10. And we'll close with this verse and then a story. From Luke 10 to Mark 10 to John chapter 10. Perfect 10. Next week, the Ten Commandments. We have a whole theme going, Pastor Dave. That's right. (laughs) This beautiful verse. 
on this same final journey to Jerusalem where Jesus said, rejoice that your names are written in heaven, look what Jesus said in John chapter 10. I have come that you may have life and have it what? Abundantly, the abundant life. Did you know that at the time Jesus spoke these words, it was actually winter, the same time of year. Jesus was walking in a uh, a covered area in the temple called Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Porch, and this was actually the area of the court of the women. So the women would have heard Jesus say the words, I have come that you have life and have it abundantly. Might have even been snowing, like this picture of Jerusalem in the snow. It was actually this time of year where the Jewish people were reading in their assigned scriptures, Ezekiel 34, about bad shepherds about bad leaders who didn't take care of the people, who didn't lead the people into the abundant life. But then Jesus stands up and says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And that's what Jesus did. In the background of this photo was a rock quarry called Golgotha where the following spring the good shepherd would lay down his life for his sheep. And here's what's really beautiful. John and James saw this for themselves. God so loving in the world. He was worthy to save us, and because he saves us, he invites us to enter into the abundant life in him. I'd like to close with an example, a story of, of how this works on an everyday basis the relationship between salvation and the abundant life. A few years ago, I came across a surprising article called Coming Clean, written by the author Max Lucado. Are you familiar with Max Lucado and his books through the years? You know, a funny story, when I was in college here uh, with Cindy, uh, um, we had just met my senior year, and I was reading a Max Lucado book, I think it was called uh, In the Eye of the Storm, and Uh, There was a funny little story in the book about Max Lucado's daughter said to him, Dad, I think it's cool that you're pastor, but I really think that, I really wish you were a snow cone salesman. (laughs) Priorities. And I was telling Cindy, we were sitting in the car, uh, I was telling Cindy about this story. I guess I had the book with me because I was trying to find it, and I remember, like, I couldn't find the story about the snow cone salesman. It's like, I was kind of trying to impress this girl that was reading books like this, couldn't find it, so... Gave up, went back to the dorm and tell Chal. The next morning, I wake up with this specific thought in my mind, page 89. Page 89. Never had anything of. I walk over to the book, I flip to page 89, and there is the snow cone story. I have no idea what that experience means, but uh, it was pretty cool at the time. Anyway, so I had read some Bex Lucado books through the years and then kind of stopped reading them for a while but I was surprised a few years ago to come across an article in in Leadership Journal by Max Lucado called Coming Clean. Here's what he wrote. He wrote, I like beer. I always have. Ever since my high school buddy and I drank ourselves sick with a case of quartz, I have liked beer. Out of the keg, tap, bottle, or frosty mug, it doesn't matter to me, I like it. Too much. Alcoholism haunts my family ancestry, so at the age of 21, I swore off it. Well, I was reading the article, I thought, all right, you know, that's, 
it's pretty safe to confess some of the sins of youth and maybe struggles that you had when you were in college before you were a well-known, high-profile author and pastor. What I didn't expect was the next few paragraphs. A few years back, Lucado wrote, something resurrected my cravings. At some point, I reached for a can of brew instead of a can of soda, and as quick as you can pop the top, I was a beer fan again. A once in a while, then once a week, then once a day beer fan. I kept my preference to myself, he wrote. No beer at home, lest my daughters think less of me. No beer in public, who knows who might see me. None at home, none in public, which left only one option, convenience store parking lots. For about a week, he wrote, I was that guy in the car drinking out of the brown paper bag. Lucado told of buying beer on the way to speak at a men's retreat and realizing he had become what he hated, a hypocrite. It wasn't the beer, but the cover-up that nauseated me, he wrote. Throwing the alcohol in the trash, Lucado resolved to make things right, confessing his actions to his local church elders. He wrote, I didn't embellish or downplay my actions, I just confessed them, and they in turn pronounced forgiveness over me. Jim Potts, a dear silver-haired saint, reached across the table and put his hand on my shoulder and said something like this. What you did was wrong, but what you are doing tonight is right. After talking to the elders, Lucado wrote, I spoke to the church. At our midweek gathering, I once again told the story. I apologized for my duplicity and requested the prayers of the congregation. What followed was a refreshing hour of confession in which other people did the same. The church was strengthened, not weakened, by our honesty. Now here's the closing question for you. When Max Lucado was struggling again with alcohol, do you believe that he had lost his salvation? That Jesus' blood couldn't keep up with Max's alcohol levels? I don't. Look, I know we might worry sometimes when we're young or old. I think of Cindy's sister when she was a little girl who every night from her bedroom called out, sorry for anything. (laughs) What was she doing? Trying to cover anything that was left. That one sin. You know, my grandmother died about 10 years ago. She died worried just as she lived worried. She ran potluck every, every Sabbath for about 30 years. And still she carried this worry. But how far down the road do you want to go of looking to self? The reason we have a savior is that we need a savior. We don't stop becoming his children when we struggle any more than our own children stop becoming our children when they're struggling. If anything, kids, we love you even more when you're struggling. We parents just want you to hurry up and live the abundant life so you don't make the same dumb mistakes we did. That's all. So this is the experience of our faith. 
January 14, 2003. Christ calls us into the abundant life, not to save ourselves, but to make the most of our time, as Ephesians 4 says, to be a blessing to others, because we can't be effective, we can't be unselfish and be a blessing to others when we're living selfishly for ourselves. But the blessing of our salvation remains his work alone. And if Jesus were to come back today, he would be worthy to save you. Amen. Please bow your heads. Lord in heaven, thank you for this beautiful group of people uh, that we have grown up with and loved for so long, who have come out to worship you this morning. Forgive us when we forget that your work is sufficient that we are covered in your blood and we don't need to add anything to that. Help us to know your love for us, a parent's love for, for his children. But forgive us also where we take advantage, where we don't respond to the call to live the life abundant, where we live selfishly and we don't pour out ourselves into this wonderful life that you've given and called us to. Help us to respond to the call to enter the land of promise and to uh, look to your son for the grace and truth that he poured out to his children. In his name I pray, amen.